Hello and welcome to In Bold, the podcast brought to you by Strategy and Middle East, where we dive into the most important topics impacting the region and the world. My name is Kelim Sarkis. In this second series of In Bold, we're looking to lift the curtain on the media and entertainment industry. In every episode, our guests will share their experience and perspectives on where the industry is going. So sit back and enjoy as we dive in. Hello, you join us today in our Experience Center in Dubai. I'm very excited about having a conversation with Shashi Menon, co-founder and CEO of UNXD. UNXD is known for many things, but most notably the work it has done uh, with premium fashion brands to bring them into the Web3 and Metaverse space. Shashi, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise. But before we get into the whole meat of the topic, as we say, if you could give us a bit of an idea or background of how did you actually get into the space? Sure. Uh, well, so our vision at UNXD is to bring iconic luxury and culture into the Web3 space and the metaverse. And we are one of the only teams today really centrally operating at the intersection of luxury and crypto, which are two worlds that historically have not intersected, and for good reason. The origins of the crypto movement are fairly anti-establishment, and to that audience, luxury very firmly represents the establishment. So for a long time, people just didn't really believe that these two worlds could merge. Uh, but our background actually comes from both of these worlds. So in the crypto space, I've been trading crypto since 2015. Uh, I first got into the space when I met this random hippie who uh, happened to be here in Dubai. And I think he was on the run from the authorities because every time I met him, he used a different name and he used burner phones. Um, but he got me into the crypto space and started trading in, in early 2015. Uh, and fast forward a couple of years, and in 2018, I launched a small fund uh, with some friends, and we got some exposure to a whole bunch of different crypto projects, and we got close to some teams that today are much larger companies, and the most notable of which is a company that today is called Polygon, back then was called Matic, and we got very close to the team over there. Uh, so when we were getting started on our journey at UNXD, we reconnected with them. Their team had just moved to Dubai in early 2021, uh, and we ended up building with them. Um, but our background in luxury is actually much longer. In 2009, uh, a friend and I started a company called Nervora, which is a media company. And since our inception, we've been working very closely with a company called Condé Nast, which is the world's most premium publisher of content and the parents of brands like Vogue and Vanity Fair and Wired and GQ. Uh, and we actually launched their first publication in the Middle East in 2012, which was a digital fashion publication. Uh, we ran that for a few years. And in 2016, we became the youngest team to ever launch an edition of Vogue when we launched Vogue Arabia. And that was a rather unique launch for Vogue. Uh, it was the first time that the brand ever launched digital first. And so the time that we launched it, it was 125 years old, roughly. Uh, and we were the first edition of that brand to launch digital first, which today, probably sounds like a little bit of a quaint idea, but back then was uh, non-traditional for a brand like that that so historically has been based on print. Um, so we launched Digital First uh, six months before we launched the magazine. We also launched to an entire region at once. It was the first edition of that brand to be launched to an entire region versus just a single country. And today it's the only edition of Vogue that is fully bilingual. And we publish it both in digital and in print bilingually. So we spent the last six years growing Vogue Arabia into one of the largest editions of Vogue globally. And along the way, we launched a few other editions of Vogue uh, targeting men and art and design. And then we also launched Wired in the Middle East in 2019. And so we've kind of been operating at this intersection of fashion, technology, and culture uh, for a very long time. Uh, and I think really the defining word here 
is culture. Um, that is the lens through which we look at the, the world. So we don't actually see ourselves as a technology company, but we see ourselves as a culture company that happens to be enabled by technology. And that entire ethos is driven by over a decade of really being creators of, of culture ourselves. I, I like very much the fact that you sort of came in from the industry or from the business side or from the luxury side of things. And then that I assume that built a level of trust uh, with your clients or partners that then allowed you to bring them into uh, sort of what is a, still a very novel space. And, and I think maybe that uh, it will help us explain to our listeners a bit how you managed to convince global brands to get early, quite early into, into the NFT space and the wider metaverse space. But um, we're still at the stage where metaverse is a very broad term. Even in your answer, uh, you know, uh, you've mentioned a lot of things. You've mentioned Web3, you mentioned crypto, you mentioned NFTs. You know, we talked about certain players uh, that are blo blockchains and so on. If we're going to define it for somebody who is not a techie, somebody who is not you know, in love with the whole technology aspect of it, but wants to understand opportunities, how would you define the metaverse? So today people kind of use several terms interchangeably and they're actually a little bit different. So blockchain, crypto, Web3 and metaverse are often used synonymously and I'll try to separate them into slightly different but interrelated concepts. So blockchain refers to the underlying technology architecture that powers everything. And the most primitive way of thinking about a blockchain is a shared public database um, that is not co controlled by any single party, but is a single source of truth. So it's run through a series of decentralized computers uh, where at any point in time, anyone in the world can look at that public source of information and see the exact same thing and not change that information. So this concept of immutability is very intrinsic to the concept of, of a blockchain. Now, crypto refers to tokens that are built on top of the blockchain. So essentially a software layer on top of the blockchain, sometimes used for currencies and economic purposes, sometimes used for utility purposes as access or tools to run a specific process uh, and sometimes used for nefarious purposes, uh, which maybe we can chat about that a little bit a little bit later. Uh, Web3 is more of a social movement more than anything else. And it represents an evolution in how consumers interact with the internet. So when thinking about Web2, which was the last phase of the consumer internet proceeding where we are today, it was generally controlled by a few centralized companies or centralized platforms uh, like Facebook, like Instagram, like Google. And the difference there is these platforms controlled everything. So users interacted with these platforms, but all of the value, uh, all of the data, all of the economic value really accrued to the platforms and not to the users, even though the users were building out those networks. The, the idea behind Web3 is that the users in any given network actually participate in the economic value that's being created. And through the use of tokens, which can be um, fungible or non-fungible, and we'll, we'll talk about the difference between those as well, these users are able to participate in the value that they're, they're creating. So it's a slightly more decentralized approach to things, and it's really a change in mindset that the participants in a network should be able to share in the value that's being created as opposed to that just accruing to a single centralized entity. Now the metaverse is the consumerization of the internet and it broadly describes a, a network of interoperable virtual worlds that are more immersive and more 3D that consumers can participate in. And today we're very, very early in what that looks like. There are a few platforms that are 
kind of primitive, but can broadly describe what that experience looks like. So there are open platforms like Decentraland and The Sandbox, which are open virtual worlds that you can interact with through an avatar. And there are closed platforms like Roblox and Fortnite that would describe themselves as metaverse companies as, as well. But I think for the average person, the metaverse will broadly look and feel like a little bit of an interactive video game. That's an interesting reference you make to gaming because one of the one of the things that we frequently see now is that games like Roblox, like Fortnite and so on, are sort of calling themselves now a metaverse or being labeled as the metaverse. At the same time, we have that uh, you know Hollywood's version of the metaverse, which was Ready Player One, yeah. which now maybe your average person, a consumer who doesn't get into the whole definition, thinks about. Where are we on this spectrum between it's just a relabeling of the online gaming or online worlds that you used to play games in versus it's this thing that's going to be all-consuming? Yeah, I, th I think to some extent it depends on whether you believe that the future is going to be utopian or dystopian. I think that's maybe the difference between how the companies in the space believe the future will be and how Hollywood believes the future will be. Obviously, a dystopian future is a little bit more intriguing as a, as a story arc for, for a film. Um, today, we're really early in, in creating that. I think kind of the, the exciting part about being in the space is that every company that's kind of building the space has somehow a, a slightly different interpretation of what that will look like, but everyone is, is co-building and experimenting in real time this sort of patchwork that will form what the metaverse will eventually be. Some of them are doing it in a very close, close fashion. Some are doing it in a very open fashion. We'll, we'll chat about that a little bit more. Um, and there's a big difference between people that are building out the software layer of it and the hardware layer of it. I think my personal belief is to get to the broad adoption of the metaverse, we're missing the hardware experience to be able to enable that and specifically like near eye wearables. So what Apple is working on and will eventually release which is more of a mixed reality headset, I believe, or like near eye wearables like glasses or contact lenses that are enabled with, with the software layer is what we're missing to be able to get out to the broader consumer version of it. But gaming is an interesting starting point because it's a really easy onboarding into what that space looks like. And so Familiar. for people that are interacting with Fortnite and Roblox, the tens or hundreds of millions of people that are doing that, it's a really good on-ramp to get into the space. And tools like crypto and Web3 are just going to be embedded in what that, what that looks like. And eventually people won't even realize that they're interacting with crypto or blockchain the same way that when you access the internet today, you don't really need to know about HTTP or TCP IP or any of the network protocols behind the internet. It's just embedded in what the experience is, and you care about what, what the consumerization is of that, not the, not the underlying technological hardware. And that, that's what I think the metaverse will end up resembling. And if we fast forward to the point where we don't have to worry about the tech, exactly as you said, you'd mentioned an interesting way of framing it. You said you work at the intersection of fashion, culture, and technology. Yeah. And, and so, or media, media, culture, and technology. And that's a nice way of framing it. When you think of it in those terms, and you know, we have the element of NFTs, but you mentioned culture. And it's, could you explain a little bit more about why you think this is a cultural movement or a cultural uh, field? Yeah, I, th I think the generation that we're seeing today, starting with millennials and Gen Z, it's really the first generation of people that grew up with the internet being 
the landscape for them. They didn't really know what, a world, what the world was like before the internet. I'm old enough to remember what, what pre-internet looked like when I had to go to the library and do research. And if something new happened, I had to wait until next year before it was, was in a book. But people today that grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s, they don't know what that world was looked like. So the internet is actually their form of reality. And culture is just formed on the internet. There's really no distinction between what's happening offline and what's happening on, on the internet. So that's, from a consumer perspective, that's, that's where the culture comes from. But as it relates to, to NFTs, I personally didn't understand NFTs when they first really emerged. So in late 2017, there was a project from a company called Dapper Labs called CryptoKitties. And it was basically cartoon forms of cats that were bought and sold and, and traded. And there was a big, big moment in late 2017 where a lot of economic value was created. And I just didn't understand why someone would pay for a picture of, of a cat. And at the time I was, I was trading crypto. So I understood crypto and I understood the, the economic side of it. I just didn't understand the NFT side and why people would, would care about that. So I spent a couple of years just casually looking at the space, but really not getting it at all. And then I had friends that started to make a lot of money in NFTs in 2020. And by late 2020, early 2021, I started to develop a thesis around NFTs. And there was a really big moment in the NFT space that happened in February of 2021, when a digital artist named Beeple sold a piece of art that was auctioned by Christie's, and it sold for about $69 million. And it was bought by a young crypto wealthy person from, from India who operates under the, the pseudonym Medicoven. And that was a really defining moment for the space for a couple of reasons. Most importantly, you had this legacy auction house Christie's that for the first time in its 100 plus year old history, auctioned a piece of digital art as opposed to, to physical art. So it was really a stamp of approval from, from the establishment that digital art was going to be a thing. And so that kind of started this frenzy. And I think the realization that we had at that time, really the light bulb moment, was that NFTs are not about technology. They're actually a product of culture. And that was, that was just the single kernel of truth that defined everything that we did afterwards. And what we realized at that time was everything that we'd done as a company in the last 12 years in the media space was really about creating these small moments of culture. And we understood what that looked and felt like. And we also had a unique perspective on luxury. But because these two worlds weren't connected, we were some of the only people in the world that maybe were at that specific intersection. So it was a little bit by chance, but we decided to go after it. And we started chatting with some of the brands that we, that we worked with, and we managed to persuade Dolce & Gabbana to enter the space with us. And then everything that happened after that really started from that, that specific, that specific mm -hmm. moment. I've heard you speak about how involved Dolce & Gabbana were at, at the founder in, in the efforts, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you actually did for them. But you said you spoke to many, to many partners, and this is a fairly new topic, maybe something that is quite the opposite of the luxury fashion world where, you know, there's an aesthetic that you're feeling, you're touching, you're wearing, and so on. Was it difficult to convince fashion brands? Was Dolce & Gabbana, do you think they're going to be one of many that will do this? We've seen many more venture into the space since then, maybe not in the same way. But do you think this is going to become the norm? Or is the, do you, they see it as an opportunity? Or do you think, you know, there's always going to be some of the naysayers or ones that are skeptical about this whole aspect of digital goods and digital presence? 
Yeah, all, all of the all of the above, I guess. Fashion has not typically been seen as an early adopter of technology and luxury within that definitely, definitely not. Luxury kind of missed the first wave of the internet and the second wave of the internet. So was late to get in to the internet overall, was late to get into social media, was late to get into e-commerce. And I think that's one of the things that's driving their exploration of the space is not wanting to miss another cycle of the internet. But when we first had a conversation with Dolce & Gabbana, we knew going into the conversation that we had to contextualize it in a way that would resonate with them. And that meant not approaching it from the perspective of blockchain or crypto or NFTs, just because it was a concept that would completely go over their heads and it, it wouldn't matter to them. So literally the first thing that we told them in the first conversation that we had with them was, if you remember nothing else from this conversation, remember this, NFTs are about culture, not about technology. And we framed the, the entire conversation around culture and creativity, which are the things that mattered to them as an organization. Because at their core, Dolce & Gabbana see themselves as artists. And fashion and the products that they create are just a, a byproduct of their artistry. So when we framed it from the perspective of creativity and culture, they understood that what we were describing was just an extension of everything that they'd actually been doing for almost 40 years, which was culture, which was creativity, which was storytelling, and eventually was commerce. And it was just happening in a new domain. So once we framed it that way, they kind of got it. And I think most miraculously, from the first conversation that we had with them, it took them less than 24 hours and this was signed off personally by Domenico Dolce and Stefano Gabbana to move forward in the space. And this is a multi-billion dollar company. I have never had this experience in, in my life that something like this could be approved so quickly, and especially in a space that was so emerging as NFTs. Because at the, at the time that we started with them, which was mid-2021, there had been nothing that was done by luxury brands in the NFT space outside of the very small ecosystem of, of people within crypto and, and Web3 and NFTs most people were skeptics, myself included. And so I think it took a lot of resolve and adventurism from them. And, and of course, a, a lot of context setting and enthusiasm generation from us to go down this, this path. But I think that the result of, of this journey with them essentially created the category of luxury NFTs. We were the first in the world to, to really do this. And a lot of other brands have followed us into the space, which has been really tremendous because the mainstreaming of Web3 is very much going to be a product of other brands, other organizations that people have trust in entering the space in space as well. Why do you think they were drawn to it? I mean, yes, you explained to them that it's about culture, so maybe that's an extension of how they see their role and, their, and the relevance of their brand. Is, was, that, was that the main driver? Was that them thinking, okay, the, my future consumers or my future buyers are going to be ones that grow natively within this environment and therefore I need to get in there early? And is, was that the motivation? Was it curiosity to try something out? Was it the money? because we were still in the yeah. hype cycle of uh, NFTs at the time. What, what do you think was the main driver for them? I think it was less about the money than anything else. Like money was going to be a byproduct of us accomplishing what we set out to do, but was not the initial goal. I think it was really this idea of creativity that inspired them. Because through this conversation around creativity, what we're able to present to them was an opportunity to create something digitally that was not constrained by any of the rules of the real world. So understanding that the designers see themselves as artists, we presented to them an idea 
that they could create without having to be bound by the rules of physics, by the rules of materials, by the rules of cost. And to them and to an artist, that's just a really exciting idea that I can just create without having any con constraints at all. And so that, that was how we, how we started. And that ended up being reflected in part of the, the first collection that we released. There was a subset of products that we called the Impossible Series, where we actually designed digital products that could not physically be created in, in the real world, and that excited them. But when we had this first conversation with them, we told them that there were really two rules before we went down this path with them. The first was in entering the space, they had to be willing to be committed to the space long-term, even if we failed initially. And that was really, really meaningful because Again, coming from this idea that the, the crypto space has long viewed the establishment with a little bit of skepticism, it was important that as a traditional brand entering the space, we had to be seen as entering it for the right reasons. And that it wasn't just about press, it wasn't just about money, but it was a commitment to be in the space and to experiment in public in real time. And this ethos of experimentation is so central to mm. everything that's happening in the space that it was very important for us that the brand was committed to being in the space to be able to do that. And the second thing that we talked to them about was really trying to understand the why of, of what, we were, what we were doing. Because for a brand like Dolce & Gabbana and for a category like luxury, NFTs were not the most logical thing necessarily for them to get into because they weren't early adopters of, of technology. So we really wanted to talk to them and understand from them like what were the core authentic reasons about why we were doing it. And I, that kind of led us to design our first release in the way that we did. And we understood from our time in the luxury world that for that space, physical artistry and physical craftsmanship matters a lot. And so we ended up designing this first collection with a portion of the collection to actually be linked to physical products as well. And we were the first in the world to really attach physical products to NFTs as opposed to looking at it as digital only. And that was something that I think was not only intrinsic to the luxury space, but was something that a luxury brand could do that just a, a startup Web3 native brand couldn't have done. So that really helped position that first collection differently. You, you mentioned that, so if I could summarize, you're saying one, understand the why and for a fashion brand for a premium luxury brand creativity aspect of it was very important so that's a clear that's a clear message i think the second message that's very clear is that you should be in this for the long term show some commitment this is not a flash in the pan type of type of endeavor but at the same time there's a lot of experimentation you don't know which, yep. what's going to happen you just need to put it out there and, and see gauge the reaction what was interesting to me was that the buyers were all as you call them crypto natives so these were not typical Dolce & Gabbana or premium fashion or luxury fashion consumers. These were people coming from the crypto space. Was that surprising to you when it happened? And do you think that will remain the case? Or will we get to a point where we cross over and you know, we no longer have this distinction? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit surprising, but I think we engineered the process to cater to that specific audience. Even the way in which we announced and rolled out the the storytelling aspect of this first collection. So when we first announced that we were partnering with Dolce Gabbana to launch this collection, we did so with just a single tweet from their Twitter account and our Twitter account. And it was a short video that didn't really say that much. It, it didn't say 
what we were doing or even why we were doing it, just that we were doing something. And we dropped that tweet, I think it was July 15th or July 16th of 2021, but it was during a very important Ethereum conference that was taking place in Paris. And we happened to be in Paris at the time. And so we knew that once we dropped that news, it would start to be seeded if it worked well or if people cared among a community of people that were gathering already around the biggest ecosystem in crypto for developers, which is which is Ethereum. So we dropped that tweet, and to our, I guess, delight, it spread incredibly rapidly. Because again, we had an environment where NFTs were starting to be taken seriously and very seriously from within a very specific community of people, but they craved adoption from the mainstream world, mm. and luxury was a part of that. So when we announced, it was the first luxury brand that was doing anything, and I think people were surprised and intrigued that a brand with the stature and status of Dolce & Gabbana would be entering the space. And they viewed it curiously and maybe even a little bit skeptically because we didn't really explain the reasons, just this tweet mm. without any other, any other context. And we let that sit for a week without giving any other context. But every major crypto publication covered the news at the time, which was interesting for us. And so it went, it went very viral. And then we waited a week and we dropped a little bit more information. And then we hosted a live audio where we started to give a little bit more information, not about what we were doing, just about the ethos behind why we were doing it and what our background was. And so that started to spread. And over the next six to eight weeks, every couple of weeks, we released a little bit more mm information. And so it started to generate enthusiasm and interest from the crypto community because we were targeting them on platforms that matter to them. So we weren't really rolling it out on Facebook or Instagram, but really targeting Twitter, which is where most of the crypto community congregates. But when we got into the space, I think kind of naively, we weren't sure whether we would be attracting an audience of traditional luxury consumers and bringing them into crypto or attracting an audience of crypto consumers and bringing them into luxury. And I think most basically, we just kind of assumed that it would be half and half. And what we found along the way was that it was just way more interesting to a crypto audience. And when the collection was released, 100% of the buyers were crypto natives and they weren't existing or pre-existing luxury consumers. They just happened to be people that got really inspired by what we were doing. They understood and were committed to NFTs and to Web3 and to crypto overall. And we had an opportunity to bring them into a space that they'd never really been a part of, but in a form and a format that was native to them. And this is one of the big, this big sleeper trends, I think that's really important that we're tapping. When you look at every new generation of wealth that's created, you tend to see this this migration up the consumption ladder towards more traditional assets that people consider to be valuable, whether it's real estate or whether it's luxury. And most recently, you saw that happen in China with the tier one cities and then the tier two cities and then the tier three cities. And within crypto, you have an audience of people that over the last several years, uh, maybe ignoring the current bear market, but before that, just by virtue of being in the space over the last several years as it grew, have amassed a level of wealth that puts them very squarely into the demographic of being luxury consumers. But because of the origins of this space, they just simply don't self-identify as luxury consumers. So we actually have an opportunity to bring this, this new luxury consumer um, that doesn't consider himself or herself to be a luxury consumer, to bring them into this space, but again, in a medium that they're more native to, which is crypto, which is NFTs. So I can understand that in terms of 
sort of accessing this new consumer base that maybe I wouldn't have through traditional means if I'm a luxury brand. Do you think we'll get to a point where the other side of consumers also sort of their, their existing customers are then wanting or demanding that they also be able to buy digital products or to be able to you know, wear the fashion brands in the metaverse or in these online worlds? Yeah, I, I think that that will happen. What's missing today is really the context of why digital fashion and why the digital world is, is useful for, for people. There aren't really environments that are satisfying or compelling for people to use digital fashion today in a really meaningful meaningful way. This is where we think the, the physical side of what we're doing with physical product and physical experience is so important because it helps to contextualize why all of this, this matters. For us as an organization, I think one of our big perspectives is that while we are very much digital maximalists in how we view the world and we see the digital digitalization of everything, we're not digital absolutists. And so that was one of our big takeaways from this whole pandemic era, that while the internet can solve for a lot of things, it's actually not yet great at solving for physical experience or physical intimacy. And so what we're trying to create is very much this intentional intersection between the digital world and the physical world. And I think that positions us a little bit differently than a lot of companies in the space. We very much don't want to see a world that's mm. digital only. And I think it's just not that interesting. And I think really for the luxury world as well, the physical side is, is so important, whether it's physical artistry or physical craftsmanship or physical, physical experience. There's real magic that can be created there. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is bring people from the digital world into the physical world. Mm. But the reverse will happen as well. And so as the digital world and the software around it and the hardware around it creates a consumer experience that can be a little bit more interesting, a little bit more satisfying. I think the physical product that we have will end up being a really good on-ramp for traditional physical fashion consumers or luxury consumers to enter this space because we're able to present to, some, present to them something that they already value. Like if you're an existing consumer of Dolce & Gabbana or Dior or Valentino, you care about the physical product. And if we're able to present that to you with other things that come from that, that starts to become interesting. But what you care about first is the, is the physical product. So we're still maybe 12, 24, 36 months away from that. But all of this is very much done by design. I think for most listeners, even 12, 36 months sounds much faster than they probably yeah. anticipated. So you mentioned like a two-step process, which is interesting because Typically, there's two views of where this is all going. Now that you know, we've gone over the hype cycle, we've gotten into the crypto winter or whatever term you want to call it, and you know, interest has subsided, there seem to have been two narratives making the rounds. So one narrative is, okay, we've gone over the hype of you know, apes and JPEGs, quote-unquote JPEGs, and now we're getting into utility, so NFTs are just going to be a means that reinforces the physical aspect of things in the sense that they're going to be, you know, this proves ownership, it allows you to trade things in a more secure or trusted way, and so on. So that's one view. The other view is, no, we're going towards this more immersive world. It's a matter of time. All the big players, Meta, Apple, etc., are investing in it. And so we're going to get to a point where this generation that's growing up now is not going to care about the physical world. They're going to care about their representation through avatars, in a, in a digital world. Mm -hmm. And so these two seem to be two contrasting views where we're going to sort of have a generational schism, if you like. But you seem to see it as a, as a the first one, sort of as an onboarding process. So I'm going to get my typical consumers 
to get to know NFTs by linking them to physical products. And then as the digital immersive world develop, then they naturally transition. Is, is that, did I capture that well? Yeah, we don't see we don't see them as mutually exclusive. I think that there's an interplay that will exist there because truthfully, there are things that you can do in the physical world that you can't do in the digital world. And the physical world is better for that, and that should be celebrated and, and embraced and and experimented with. And there are things that you can do in the digital world that you can't do in the physical world, and the digital world is is better for that, and that should be celebrated and embraced. And so. We want to build for both of those experiences. And then we see magic that can happen when you kind of intersect intersect the two. If we take the digital aspect of things, if we take the quote-unquote manufacturing of digital fashion, which effectively is all digital and hence yeah. doesn't have any of the issues around sustainability and ethical practices and child labor and so on that have done yeah. the industry for some time. And if we think that there's going to be mass adoption, do you think the business of fashion itself is going to drastically change in the sense that if most of the value is being created through the sale of its digital or virtual products, it will actually change what these companies are doing physically in the ground, whether we still need the factories in the same way, whether we still need to have these global supply chains, or we just end up, you know, the physical goes back to maybe the origins of couture where it was just very unique, very special one-offs, and actually the mass is all in, in digital. Is it going to be that extreme, or is it always going to be this balance between the two? I don't think it will be that extreme. I certainly hope that it's not that extreme. That's not that's not an outcome that I think I would very much enjoy living in. I, I think the couture side of it is is interesting to us because of the attention to detail that's involved in the physical craftsmanship of items that are that are created. We saw a real parallel between just the fundamental idea of couture and the idea of NFTs, because physical couture is really about creating these one-off bespoke mm -hmm. items that are only ever created once, are incredibly unique, are incredibly valuable, and are pieces of art. And that's how we saw NFTs as well. There also seems to be two different approaches to creating the, the sort of digital fashion. So we've had the examples where there's replication of the traditional or like also, like you mentioned, where there's sort of this twinning of the land of digital. But there also was the example of, you know, digital, digital first fashion houses, like, or if you can call them fashion houses, like the Fabricant. Yeah. There's also Nike acquiring Artifact. And then the most recent development where a sneaker that was created as a digital product ended up actually being created as a physical product. As a, so it came in the other direction. Yeah. Is this just an aspect of the sneaker world or is this something that you think will become more and more common? I think it'll be more and more common. So we, we've experimented with digital first collections that are forged into physicals, not just with sneakers. So we have a collection that we released called Realta Parallela, which stands for, or which translates to reality. parallel reality, basically in Italian. And it was a collection of t-shirts, hoodies, and, and sneakers that started as a digital first release, but then physically forgeable, and then a custom production run mm -hmm. that's happening right now will be released to people. And it's, it's an interesting approach to sustainability, and that's not really the narrative that we had going into it, but it is one of the byproducts that it, it's an entire physical production run that is mapped one-to-one -to, -one to demand. And so people were released this, this collection of NFTs to our, our community, and then they could go through a redemption process to then choose their style, choose their size, and then the production happened afterwards. So we're basically mapping the entire production run to what people actually want, so there's no, there's no wastage. I think that will happen more and more. Uh, I think it kind of taps into some of the dynamics of the Web3 space about being able to participate in the creation in a way, being able to trade, uh, and for 
for the companies themselves, it's, it's a, a very interesting approach to production because you have all of the production funded before the production happens, and then you have, you have no wastage. But Nike has been a really great example of what experimentation looks like. Their acquisition of Artifact was, was brilliant. Artifact is, is one of the companies in this space that I think everyone looks at with a great deal, great deal of respect. I also noticed that even companies like Fabricant who are meant to be entirely digital and, and maybe in the Web3 world, still wanted to go to known fashion designers to maybe give some valid validation of the product that they're creating. And so that seemed to reinforce your point about, you know, it's not enough to just create any digital work. Is that something that you think will survive any digital transformation or technology impact that the fashion world is experiencing? This, uh, this uh, focus on the individual narrative behind a fashion house or a brand or, an, or a designer? Yeah, I, I, would, I would contrast our approach, I think, a little bit to, to the fabricant. They were, they were early in the space and know the team over there very well. I think they have a different perspective on what the future will look like for fashion. They very much want to go into this digital-only world, whereas we see the physical side of things mattering quite a bit. They're doing a lot to embrace emerging talent and, and kind of cultivate that space. We started more on the established brand side. And part of that, I think, comes from this idea that in order to get people to be excited about the space, you need to give them context and something that they, that they care about. If I look at the first collection that we released, without it being a major brand, I just don't think it would have been as successful, even if we did everything else the same. The art could have been as beautiful, the story could have been as beautiful, but the fact that it was this big established brand that came with legacy, that came with heritage, that came with a footprint in the real world that gave that gave it context and that was that was really that was really important but there is a role that that legacy brands and upstart brands will play in in the space i think both add value i think legacy brands have a lot that they can bring to the table. Building a brand is incredibly difficult. Building a brand in the luxury space is incredibly difficult. There's no replacement for time when you're talking about heritage and, and the craftsmanship process. And most of these brands that, that we're working with have been around for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. It's very hard for a new brand to come in and claim to be a heritage luxury brand. It's actually impossible. So that I think, that I think matters. And these brands have spent decades really honing the process of creation, honing the process of physical craftsmanship, honing the process of experience in the real world. And there's so much magic that comes from the intimacy and the storytelling in the real world that these brands do that can be translated into the digital world if done in, in the right way. Where upstart brands, I think, have a little bit of an advantage in this space is, of course, they can experiment more quickly. Of course, they're not restricted by any sort of legacy infrastructure. And I think these, these upstart brands that are forming just in the, the Web3 space today have a little bit of an advantage in that they kind of understand the, the culture of the internet better than some of the more traditional brands. But both have a role to play in the ecosystem. I think the role that, that we have as an organization is to try to bridge the two. Mm -hmm. we, we've been talking about brands that actually have already you know, had their foray into the Web3 space and are committed to it. There's a lot more that haven't yet, although the list keeps growing. It's grown a lot since your Dolce Gabbana project. The list does keep growing, but there's still many that have not entered the space. What's your, how do you advise those players, whether in the fashion sector or more broadly, in terms of getting into the metaverse and getting into the web? Are there sort of some baby steps that they can take to familiarize themselves? Should they go all in from the beginning? Is it an experiment on the side? Should it be something 
you know, sort of that's coherent with their overall strategy? How should they think about entering the space? Yeah, I think they should all start by starting. Definitely, it's, it's a space that can be intimidating because it's different and the audience of people is different and it moves very quickly. Established brands can struggle with that because the cycles in crypto are just very, very compressed. And so every six months and sometimes even, even shorter, the landscape changes quite a lot. So even, even for us, being very early into the space, the things that worked for us a year ago, even six months ago, won't work anymore. And so the, the playbook has to change. And so if you have an organization that is used to spending six months nine months, a year, assessing something before doing it, by the time the assessment is complete, the conclusions won't actually be useful for the space as it exists at that specific moment. So that, that I think is where the biggest difficulty exists for traditional organizations. So you have to completely change the mindset to be in the space. Once you get past that, I think approaching it from a position of experimentation and humility is very is very important. So kind of once you you figure out the the why and you're committed to being in the space, I think everything kind of follows from from that. I do think that every organization will need to have some kind of strategy for being in the space whether you call it web3 or or the metaverse. It's just where the world is going and I think if if technology cycles have taught us anything, it's just that the the consumerization of technology is just an, an ever-moving force. And so ignoring it doesn't really, doesn't really get you anywhere. When we started this conversation, I think the description of UNXD would have implied you're a technology company. You mentioned working at the intersection of technology and culture and media and fashion. But then you were using terms, I noticed when you were answering the questions, you were using terms like, you know, we were fussing over the details of a dress or the collection that we released or the, you know, we wanted to make sure that the creativity was evident or the, you mentioned uniqueness, beauty. Are you a technology company or are you a hybrid fashion design company? Has, has this whole experience changed how you think of yourself as a business? No, I think we've always described ourselves as a culture company. I think technology to us is an enabler and not the, not the end goal. What we've taken away from being very deeply in the luxury space for a long time is a level of obsessiveness with, with the detail. Like we care about things that maybe a lot of people won't notice, but the people that do really care about. There's this anecdote from many years ago when Steve Jobs was creating the first iMac, he wanted the, the screws on the inside of the computer to be polished. And nobody would ever see this unless they actually took apart the computer, but he actually like, really obsessed over this detail because he wanted that level of obsess obsessiveness about the product itself. And so I think that's, that's something that kind of stuck with us and we, we care about about those details. And the people within luxury, I think, care about those details as well. Consumers, at least the ones that notice, notice that, also, also care. But I think the ethos that we have of being a culture company is, is born from having created culture ourselves. And I think understanding what media is, is just a vehicle for, for culture creation, has very much informed the approach that we have. Shashi, thank you for a great conversation. I think it's still early days. I look forward to hearing a lot about UNXD pushing the envelope further and, and the whole space between fashion, technology, and culture. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Strategy and Middle East In Bold podcast. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for more. See you next time.